Uh, this morning, I've done it again. I'm trying to uh, tackle something uh, that is way too large to describe in just 20 minutes. And um, my only consolation is that uh, I have, the hopefully, uh, a lot more years ahead of me and many more Sundays to try to describe this one thing uh, and to plumb the depths of this one thing that I want to share with you today. And of course, you know, if Jesus were standing here right now, he could, he could just say, you know, maybe three sentences or, or he could just look at us and we would understand the depth of what he just was trying to communicate to us. And of course, me, uh, it's just me here. And, and so I, I'm going to try to grab all these words and try to pull them down. And I'm only going to be able to describe this, this little sliver of this picture that is so immense. And so I just, um, I have this fear. <laughs> I have this fear in talking about this one thing that you just might perceive this as pretty ordinary. Or you might think it's just cliché or just kind of humdrum. And in fact, instead of being overwhelmed by the magnitude of this one thing, I, I fear that you might be just underwhelmed. And so I'm just really praying, Lord, help me in this moment right now to uh, share this one thing. And uh, I pray that you'll get a bigger glimpse of even what I'm describing. That the Lord will somehow translate this into your mind and hearts. So, this one thing that I want to share with you has transformed my life. It has kept me from giving up on life. Uh, this one thing has lifted me from despair and given me joy. It's kept me true when I've been tempted to be false. It has uh, helped me rejoice for others when I just wanted to pity myself. It's enabled me to reach out to people that are not so reachable and it has had a continual transforming effect on my life up to this very moment. This one thing is not just something that has happened, occurred in my past, and I packed it up neat and tidy and I moved on. This thing has continued to wreck me and wreck my life over and over and over again to this very moment right here. And it is something that I did not earn, I did not deserve, but I have fully and continually received. You know what that one thing is? You know what the one thing is that I want to talk to you about today? And what I want to share with you from the Word of God is? Some of you sang about it as little kids. Sue brought it up this morning. and I've, I've been on spring break. I went to visit my parents in Kansas. and So Sue and I didn't talk as much about what we were both going to share. And, and so the Lord really must want you to hear this over and over. Because um, we didn't coordinate our thoughts uh, this week. And yet uh, He wants you to hear this. And the one thing is, is, is a song you probably sang as a little kid. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. And the Lord wants you to hear that over and over today for some reason. So listen intently. Not just with uh, your ears, but with the heart. The Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me. Do you know it? Do you know it? Did you know that the greatest force on this planet... It's not nuclear power. It's not the U.S. military. It's not even gravity. That's not the greatest force on this planet. The greatest moving force is the love of God demonstrated through Jesus Christ poured out on the cross. And at that moment, He split time in two. 
B.C. and A.D. He made such an impact on the course of history and the course of mankind. The love of Jesus has changed the course of nations. It has stopped wars. It has ended slavery. It has helped feed the hungry. It has clothed the naked, give shelter to the poor, brought freedom to oppressed people. Christ's love has motivated ordinary men and women to do extraordinary, strange, and wonderful things. It was Christ's love that took a hold of a greedy, thieving IRS man named Zacchaeus and changed his stingy, cold heart into a generous, warm heart. Zacchaeus not only paid back what he stole, but he included interest and paid back four times what he owed. And then he gave away half his possessions to the poor. What got a hold of him? Jesus loves me. This I know. That's what got a hold of him. In the early church, the Christian leader at Smyrna, a man named Polycarp, was told by the Roman proconsul to curse Christ and to stop teaching. As Polycarp was threatened with death, he cried out for everybody to hear, bring on the beast, bring on the fire, bring on whatever you choose to kill me with. You shall not move me to deny Christ, my Lord and Savior. <coughs> Excuse me. What would make a man say such a thing? Jesus loves me. This I know. The love of Christ would move a man to do that. In the late 1800s, in England, there was a young, wealthy, handsome man named C.T. Studd. And at the peak of his career as a professional cricket player, he gave it all up. He had fame. He had wealth and looks. And there were so much so, he had these in such great quantity that um, the phrase that many of us have used here in the States was derived from his name and his popularity. Oh, he's such a stud. They weren't saying that you're a horse. Although some of us have come to think that that's what it means. But it really came from C.T. Studd, this great uh, man. And, uh, but he walked away from all that uh, to serve as a lifetime missionary in China and India and help mobilize over 20,000 young people to become missionaries. After his parents died, he received his inheritance, which was millions and millions of dollars by today's standard and the amount of the dollar. But he gave it all away. He died penniless in the heart of Africa trying to begin a new missions work there. What could motivate a man to throw away his career, throw away fame, throw away fortune, and then pour his life into places and people that some would say are God-forsaken? The love of Christ. Jesus loves me. This I know. Before Amy Carmichael became a famous missionary to India, she attended a well-to-do church in Belfast, Ireland. And as a young woman, she was inspired to go into the slums and reach out to the girls who worked in the factories. And for the, the very proper people of that day and age, that was just a scandal. And many people uh, were offended by Amy and what she was doing and offended that she was bringing these people into their church. And, uh, and they thought that uh, Amy's reputation was suffering. And uh, so they questioned her. And Amy kept going. <coughs> she kept going after these girls and bringing them. And Amy began to bring so many of these factory girls to church that it caused such a ruckus that they decided there, there needs to be a separate building, another church building for these, these folks. And so at age 22, Amy wasn't daunted by that. She wasn't discouraged. She didn't say, man, church sucks. I hate church people. I'm going to go off and I'm going to just worship by myself somewhere. You know what she did instead? You know what she said? She said, oh, okay, 
I'll raise the money for the land and the building. And she did. And she built a church for those people. Started it, began it. What would drive a woman to pour herself out for the outcasts of her society? Jesus loves me. This I know. The love of Christ can make a person do strange things. It wasn't too long ago that a missionary's wife was widowed when a primitive Central American tribe killed her husband along with two other missionaries. The young widow, along with her uh, four-year-old daughter, decided to go back into the jungle, hike back in, went to the tribe that had killed her husband, and began a missions work among, her, among them. Later, Elizabeth Elliot was able to lead to Christ the very men who killed her husband. What would compel a woman to do such a thing? Jesus loves me. This I know. The love of Christ can make a person do wonderful things. For any of these men and women that I mentioned, and for the thousands that I didn't mention, who, what could ever be powerful enough to motivate them to do such strange and wonderful things? What could compel them? And I'm sure some people question their motives. You know, it, it, I, but I don't think it could have been anything else. And I'm sure there's some of you here today <coughs> that could stand up and say the same thing. And you could say, you know what? I know what compelled them. Because that same thing compels me. Jesus loves me. This I know. It's the love of Christ. And it compels me too. You know. You've been touched by that most powerful force. The love of Christ. You've experienced it. But possibly, there may be some of you here today that haven't. There may be some of you that just say, I really am not sure that I can believe that. I'm not sure I can believe that Jesus really loves me. You think that, that possibly you've done something or crossed some sort of line that puts you beyond or out of reach of God's love. You think that there's something that separates you from the love of Christ. But what do you think, what do you think might separate you from God's relentless, unceasing, limitless, never faltering love? What could? Do you really think there's something or someone who could stop God from loving who He wants to love? And the bigger question, do you think that God wants to love you? You know what? I believe He does. I believe He does. In this, in this world's attempt to describe God is often reduce God to, to man-sized proportions. In our minds, you know, we can imagine God and what He is like but our imagination uses images and words from what we've experienced here on this planet, which are all very bound to small and limited things like ourselves. Sometimes the best our imaginations can do is, is conjure up some sort of uh, Superman who is very much like us, but just a bit more of everything. You know, a bit more knowledgeable, a bit more powerful, a bit more loving than us. Sometimes our man-sized image is projected onto God with our human faults. And we, so we imagine someone, we imagine a God who's like ourselves, one who is a bit too angry, a bit too unforgiving, a bit too concerned with themselves to be concerned about others. But the love of God through Jesus Christ is not like our love. And the love and the Lord 
and the God that's described in the Bible is beyond our imaginations and much better than what we could ever imagine or picture. We just saw the greatest picture of God's love a couple of Sundays ago when he demonstrated his love on the cross, a picture of his love, dying for us while we we're still sinners. But let me give you two more biblical pictures, images to help you understand that you are not beyond the love of God. You have not gone too far. And one picture is a picture of, of a love that uh, is between a man and a woman. And the other picture is a love that a parent would have for a child. Now the first picture comes from the words and the account of the prophet Hosea, found in chapters 1 through 3. Now Hosea, he lived in a time and he did his work during the last 40 years of Israel's existence, right before they were scattered and destroyed by the Assyrians. And there's a whole lot to tell about this book and this specific account, but I just have a little bit of time, and so this is going to have to do for now. Basically, by the time Hosea had come onto the scene, Israel, the northern kingdom, had been unfaithful to God for 390 years. The people were unfaithful, and not just the people, the leaders and the priests were unfaithful. In one of the Levite cities called Bethel, uh, which means house of God, it was the place where God uh, made his promise to Jacob, and earlier had made his promise to Abraham. And at that place, uh, Jacob had a dream. It was a dream of a stairway coming down from heaven, basically saying that God initiates any kind of an effort of trying to reach him, that he provides a way to reach him. But, but in this place that was called Bethel, the house of God, what the Israelites had done is that they had turned the city into a place of, of worship of one of the fertility gods. And uh, so basically, which involved prostitution and all kinds of strange sexual acts expressing worship through them. And God tells Hosea, he tells him to mock the name of the city. Instead of saying, calling it Bethel, he tells him to call it Beth-Avon, which basically means house of whores. <coughs> this is what and how far Israel had gone in walking away from God. And I say unfaithful because when this whole relationship with God and Israel began, it was initiated by a promise or a covenant with God, very similar to marriage vows which were, were really officiated by Moses. And the heart of those vows being the Ten Commandments. It was as, as if God had wedded Israel. But this covenant was written almost like a contract. And the contract went something like this. God is faithful and just. Israel is to be faithful. But if Israel becomes unfaithful, then no further pursuit of the relationship is required by God. He sees the contract as broken, picks up his briefcase, and walks out of the courtroom. Justice says, I owe you nothing because the contract is broken. That was the kind of agreement God had with the Israelites. But where justice ends, the love of God begins. According to the prophet Hosea, God is willing to maintain and even pursue his spouse Israel, even when she is unfaithful and behaving like a prostitute, even when she has broken the marriage vows, this contract, this covenant that God had with Israel. God's love isn't based on them fulfilling the contract. Our brains have a hard time imagining and thinking of this. So the way God chose to let Israel know that He wants her and he loves her, is this. He asks 
Hosea to be a living demonstration of God's love. Now, this isn't unusual. God did this several other times with other prophets, with the prophet Ezekiel. He was trying to communicate a message. So he told Ezekiel, I want you to go and dig a hole through the wall of the city and take a bag of clothes and, and head out at night. And when all the people ask you what you're doing, tell them that it's this, a picture of this message. And I'm trying to say that you know, destruction's come to the city and you're going to have to escape in the middle of the night. And, uh, and so God did this several times over with prophets. And so this wasn't unusual, but... What he asked Hosea to do was a big stretch for any man or any woman. Because here's what God asked him to do. God tells Hosea to go find an unfaithful woman and marry her. See what Hosea does? He doesn't. I mean, what, what, what would a guy do? I mean, he goes around looking for a woman that he believes would cheat on him. Basically, that's what he had to do. And after he found this woman... And after having three children with her, she did cheat on him. She did leave him. She leaves him for another man or possibly men. And the Lord says, this is the picture of what Israel has done to me. And then he tells Hosea to do something nobody would have predicted. Nobody. He tells him, go show love to your wife, even though she's loved by another and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves Israel. So Hosea, he goes and he does it. And what he actually has to do, he has to buy back his wife. Because somehow uh, she's either sold herself into slavery or has become a slave through prostitution or is actually whoring and selling her body. And he buys her back and takes her home. And he speaks kindly to her. And he tells her that she's to be his wife forever and the living demonstration is complete and God says he will do the same with Israel he'll pursue those who forget him and go after other lovers he'll still chase after them he'll be faithful and show his love to those he will even have to buy out of slavery of sin did God hate Israel's sin and unfaithfulness yeah from the same prophet in the same book he, he, God doesn't mince his words. He says that they are corrupted. They're half-baked. They're arrogant. They're weak. But was the giving of God's love based on their performance? No. And isn't this what God accomplishes and completes for us through Jesus? He pursues us. He purchases us at the cross and shows His love to corrupted half-baked, arrogant people like me and you. Isn't that what he's done? A love not based on my performance or your performance, but just based simply on the fact that he is God and that he loves and he is faithful. I know our minds have a hard time accepting that because we've We've grown up in a, in a world where we earn everything. We deserve everything. We work for stuff. And then when we do bad things, we get punished. And all of a sudden, God says, even though you don't hold up your end of the contract, I still love you. I'm still going to pursue you. I have the right to walk away from you. Justice says, I can say no. Justice says, I punish you. But you know what? Punishment was taken at the cross. 
And so I'm going to continue to pursue you. And I'm going to continue to love you. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. In chapter 11, Hosea, uh, the Lord then begins uh, speaking of his love as a parent to a child. And again, the scriptures speak of Israel's disobedience, but describe a God, describe the Father as a parent who can't stop loving his child. When we look ahead of Hosea's time toward the cross, we see how God fulfills his parental love by adopting us into his family. Despite our intent on running from him, despite our despising him and even hating him at times. And you know the great thing about God expressing his love through the idea and act of adoption? Some of you parents know. Some of you, uh, our, 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 uh, one of our children was a, whoops, I wasn't planning on having a child. Surprise. But you know with adoption, it's no surprise. You think about it. You plan. You pray. My brother-in-law and sister-in-law uh, adopted a little boy from Kazakhstan. And when they came in and swooped up this little boy from an orphanage into their arms, this little boy had no idea that these two people had been planning and saving up their money and praying and searching for him. And then they, they talked with lawyers and customs officials and government people in Kazakhstan. And then they, they tried to get the money to fly over and then to get there and find him and, and take him home. He had no idea. He didn't do anything. All that effort came from the parents. All that planning came from them. All he did was receive it. And all he knew was, now I'm going to be loved. Now I'm going to be loved. So, God says he's done the same with us. That he's planned for many, many, many years. He's left his home from heaven sought and bought you as his own. And none of that effort was you. None of that effort came from you. He didn't adopt you because you're good. He didn't adopt you because you're deserving. And he found you. You're not out of his reach. You're not beyond his love. Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Let me finish with this parental picture of God's love for you and me. And I just want to tell you a story. It's a children's story. And uh, it's one that I, I told my, my kids and read to my kids uh, when they're younger. And maybe some of you have read it to your kids. And it goes something like this. A mother held her new baby in her arms. Rocked her baby back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And as she rocked her baby, she sang over him, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. And that little boy, that little baby boy grew. And he grew, and he grew, and he grew. He grew until he was nine years old. Uh oh, sorry. I skipped two years old. Grew until he was two years old. And that little two-year-old baby, he ran around all that mother's house. 
He pulled the books off the shelves. He opened up the refrigerator and pulled out all the food onto the floor. He took his mother's watch and flushed it down the toilet. And the mother said, this kid is driving me crazy. But at nighttime, when that two-year-old was quiet, she opened the door to his room and would creep across the floor and would peep up over the bedside. And if that little two-year-old boy was really asleep, she would pick him up in her arms, begin to rock him back and forth, back and forth. She would sing over him. I love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. And that little baby, two-year-old boy, grew, and he grew, and he grew, and he grew until he was nine years old. And that nine-year-old boy never liked to come in for dinner, never wanted to wash his hands. He never wanted to take a bath, in fact. And when Grandma visited, he always said bad words around her. And sometimes his mother wanted to sell him to the zoo. But at nighttime, when he was asleep, she would open the door to his room, and she would creep across the floor, and she would peek up over the bedside. And if that nine-year-old boy was really asleep, she would pick him up, sit on the edge of his bed, and rock him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and sing, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby will be. Well, that nine-year-old boy grew, and he grew, and he grew, and he grew until he was a teenager. And that teenager, well, he had strange friends, and he had strange clothes, and he would actually wear them. And he listened to strange music. And sometimes his mother felt like she lived in a zoo. But at nighttime, when that teenager was asleep, she would open up the door of his room, and she would creep across the floor, and she would look up and peep over the side of the bed, and if that teenage boy was asleep, she'd pick up that great big teenage boy and she would rock him back and forth in his arms and say, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. Well, that teenage boy grew. And he grew, and he grew, and he grew until he was a full-grown man. And he bought a house on the other side of town, moved across. But sometimes on dark nights, the mother got into her car and she drove across town. And if all the lights in her son's house were out, she opened his bedroom window and climbed in. And she would creep across the floor and she would peep over the side of the bed. And if that big grown man was really asleep, she would pick up that great big grown man and she would rock him back and forth and she'd say, I love you. Forever, I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby, you'll be. Well, that mother, she got older and older and older. And one day she called up her son and she said, you better come see me because I'm very old and sick. So her son came to see her. And when he came in the door, she tried to sing the song for him. I'll love you forever. 
I like you. But she couldn't finish it because she was too sick. And the son went to his mother and he scooped up his mother in his arms and he began to rock her back and forth. And he sang the song over her, said, I love you forever. I love like you for always. As long as I'm living, my mommy you'll be. When the son came home that night, he walked up to the stairs of his house and stood at the top, stood there for a moment, just thinking. And then he went into the room where his very new baby daughter was sleeping. And he picked her up in his arms and very slowly rocked her back and forth, back and forth. And he sang over her, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby, you'll be the end. And folks, that's the kind of love the Bible says the Lord has for you. And that's the kind of love that he sings over you, the Bible says. And if that is the case, and if that's true, what can separate you from his love? What are you afraid of? Are you afraid your weaknesses could separate you from the love of Christ? Let me tell you, it can't. Are you afraid your inadequacies could separate you from the love of Christ? They can't. Difficult marriage, loneliness, economic hardship, mistakes, fears, uncertainties, they can't either. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's true, folks. Believe it. And those of you who already believe this, without a doubt in your mind, just remember, you did nothing to earn this love. Nothing. And nothing can change His love for you now. And for those of you who haven't believed up to this moment, know that the Lord Jesus has powerfully extended His love to you. And like a groom on his knee before his bride, He says this. He says, Will you have me? That's what Jesus says to you. You see, He's already demonstrated His love at the cross. He's already shown you. The ball is in your court now. Will you have him? Will you have him? Jesus loves you. This you do know now. Because the Bible has told you so.